Part 1. Propositions 11 to 15 of The Ethics by Spinoza. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dr. Wu. The Ethics by Benedict de Spinoza. Translated by R. H. M. Ells. Part 1. Propositions 11 to 15. Proposition 11. God, or substance, consisting of infinite attributes of which each expresses eternal and infinite essentiality, necessarily exists. Proof. If this be denied, conceive, if possible, that God does not exist. Then his essence does not involve existence. But this, Proposition 7, is absurd. Therefore, God necessarily exists. Another proof. Of everything whatsoever a cause or reason must be assigned, either for its existence or for its non-existence. Exempli gratia, if a triangle exists, a reason or cause must be granted for its existence. If, on the contrary, it does not exist, a cause must also be granted which prevents it from existing, or annuls its existence. This reason or cause must either be contained in the nature of the thing in question, or be external to it. For instance, the reason for the non-existence of a square circle is indicated in its nature, namely, because it would involve a contradiction. On the other hand, the existence of substance follows also solely from its nature, inasmuch as its nature involves existence. See Proposition 7. But the reason for the existence of a triangle or circle does not follow from the nature of those figures, but from the order of universal nature in extension. From the latter it must follow, either that a triangle necessarily exists, or that it is impossible that it should exist. So much is self-evident. It follows, therefrom, that a thing necessarily exists if no cause or reason be granted which prevents its existence. If, then, no cause or reason can be given which prevents the existence of God, or which destroys his existence, we must certainly conclude that he necessarily does exist. If such a reason or cause should be given, it must either be drawn from the very nature of God, or be external to him, that is, drawn from another substance of another nature. For if it were of the same nature, God, by that very fact, would be admitted to exist. But substance of another nature could have nothing in common with God, by Proposition 2, and therefore would be unable either to cause or to destroy his existence. As, then, a reason or cause which would annul the divine existence cannot be drawn from anything external to the divine nature, such cause must perforce, if God does not exist, be drawn from God's own nature, which would involve a contradiction. To make such an affirmation about a being absolutely infinite and supremely perfect is absurd. Therefore, neither in the nature of God nor externally to his nature can a cause or reason be assigned which would annul his existence. Therefore, God necessarily exists. Quad erat demonstrandum. Another proof. The potentiality of non-existence is a negation of power, and contrariwise the potentiality of existence is a power, as is obvious. If, then, 
that which necessarily exists is nothing but finite beings such finite beings are more powerful than a being absolutely infinite which is obviously absurd therefore either nothing exists or else a being absolutely infinite necessarily exists also now we exist either in ourselves or in something else which necessarily exists see axiom one and proposition seven therefore a being absolutely infinite in other words god definition six necessarily exists quod erat demonstrandum note in this last proof i have purposely shown god's existence a posteriori so that the proof might be more easily followed not because from the same premises god's existence does not follow a priori for as the potentiality of existence is a power it follows that in proportion as reality increases in the nature of a thing so also will it increase its strength for existence therefore a being absolutely infinite such as god has from himself an absolutely infinite power of existence and hence he does absolutely exist perhaps there will be many who will be unable to see the force of this proof inasmuch as they are accustomed only to consider those things which flow from external causes of such things they see that those which quickly come to pass that is quickly come into existence quickly also disappear whereas they regard as more difficult of accomplishment that is not so easily brought into existence those things which they conceive as more complicated however to do away with this misconception i need not here show the measure of truth in the proverb what comes quickly goes quickly nor discuss whether from the point of view of universal nature all things are equally easy or otherwise i need only remark that i am not here speaking of things which come to pass through causes external to themselves but only of substances which by proposition six cannot be produced by any external cause things which are produced by external causes whether they consist of many parts or few owe whatsoever perfection or reality they possess solely to the efficacy of their external cause and therefore their existence arises solely from the perfection of their external cause not from their own contrarywise whatsoever perfection is possessed by substance is due to no external cause wherefore the existence of substance must arise solely from its own nature which is nothing else but its essence thus the perfection of a thing does not annul its existence but on the contrary asserts it imperfection on the other hand does annul it therefore we cannot be more certain of the existence of anything than of the existence of a being absolutely infinite or perfect that is of god for inasmuch as his essence excludes all imperfection and involves absolute perfection all cause for doubt concerning his existence is done away and the utmost certainty on the question is given this i think will be evident to every moderately attentive reader proposition twelve 
No attribute of substance can be conceived from which it would follow that substance can be divided. Proof. The parts into which substance, as thus conceived, would be divided, either will retain the nature of substance, or they will not. If the former, then, by proposition 8, each part will necessarily be infinite, and by proposition 6, self-caused, and, by Proposition 5, will perforce consist of a different attribute, so that, in that case, several substances could be formed out of one substance, which, by Proposition 6, is absurd. Moreover, the parts, by Proposition 2, would have nothing in common with their whole, and the whole, by Definition 4 and Proposition 10, could both exist and be conceived without its parts, which everyone will admit to be absurd. If we adopt the second alternative, namely, that the parts will not retain the nature of substance, then, if the whole substance were divided into equal parts, it would lose the nature of substance and would cease to exist, which, by Proposition 7, is absurd. Proposition 13. Substance absolutely infinite is indivisible. Proof. If it could be divided, the parts into which it was divided would either retain the nature of absolutely infinite substance or they would not. If the former, we should have several substances of the same nature, which by Proposition 5 is absurd. If the latter, then by Proposition 7, substance absolutely infinite could cease to exist which, by Proposition 11, is also absurd. Corollary. It follows that no substance, and consequently no extended substance, insofar as it is substance, is divisible. Note. The indivisibility of substance may be more easily understood as follows. The nature of substance can only be conceived as infinite, and by a part of substance nothing else can be understood than finite substance, which by Proposition 8 involves a manifest contradiction. Proposition 14. Besides God, no substance can be granted or conceived. Proof. As God is a being absolutely infinite, of whom no attribute that expresses the essence of substance can be denied, by definition 6, and he necessarily exists by proposition 11, if any substance besides God were granted, it would have to be explained by some attribute of God, and thus two substances with the same attribute would exist, which, by proposition 5, is absurd. Therefore, besides God, no substance can be granted or consequently be conceived, if it could be conceived, it would necessarily have to be conceived as existent. But this, by the first part of this proof, is absurd. Therefore, besides God, no substance can be granted or conceived. Quod erat demonstrandum. Corollary 1. Clearly, therefore, 1. God is one, that is, by definition 6, only one substance can be granted in the universe, and that substance is absolutely infinite, as we have already indicated in the note to Proposition 10. Corollary 2. It follows, 2. That extension and thought are either attributes of God, or, 
by axiom one, accidents, affecciones, of the attributes of God. Proposition 15. Whatsoever is, is in God, and without God nothing can be or be conceived. Proof. Besides God, no substance is granted or can be conceived by Proposition 14, that is, by Definition 3, nothing which is in itself and is conceived through itself. But modes, by Definition 5, can neither be nor be conceived without substance, wherefore they can only be in the divine nature and can only through it be conceived. But substances and modes from the sum total of existence, by axiom one, therefore, without God nothing can be or be conceived. Quod erat demonstrandum. Note. Some assert that God, like a man, consists of body and mind, and is susceptible of passions. How far such persons have strayed from the truth is sufficiently evident from what has been said. But these I pass over. For all who have in any wise reflected on the divine nature deny that God has a body. Of this they find excellent proof in the fact that we understand by body a definite quantity, so long, so broad, so deep, bounded by a certain shape, and it is the height of absurdity to predicate such a thing of God, a being absolutely infinite. But meanwhile, by other reasons with which they try to prove their point, they show that they think corporeal or extended substance wholly apart from the divine nature, and say it was created by God. Wherefrom the divine nature can have been created, they are wholly ignorant. Thus they clearly show that they do not know the meaning of their own words. I myself have proved sufficiently clearly, at any rate in my own judgment. Corollary. Proposition 6 and Note 2. Proposition 8. That no substance can be produced or created by anything other than itself. Further, I showed in Proposition 14 that besides God, no substance can be granted or conceived. Hence we drew the conclusion that extended substance is one of the infinite attributes of God. However, in order to explain more fully, I will refute the arguments of my adversaries, which all start from the following points. Extended substance, insofar as it is substance, consists as they think in parts, wherefore they deny that it can be infinite, or, consequently, that it can appertain to God. This they illustrate with many examples, of which I will take one or two. If extended substance, they say, is infinite, let it be conceived to be divided into two parts. Each part will then be either finite or infinite. If the former, then infinite substance is composed of two finite parts, which is absurd. If the latter, then one infinite will be twice as large as another infinite, which is also absurd. Further, if an infinite line be measured out in foot lengths, it will consist of an infinite number of such parts. It would equally consist of an infinite number of parts, if each part measured only an inch. Therefore, one infinity would be twelve times as great as the other. Lastly, 
If from a single point there be conceived to be drawn two diverging lines which at first are at a definite distance apart but are produced to infinity, it is certain that the distance between the two lines will be continually increased until at length it changes from definite to indefinable. As these absurdities follow, it is said, from considering quantity as infinite, the conclusion is drawn that extended substance must necessarily be finite, and consequently cannot appertain to the nature of God. The second argument is also drawn from God's supreme perfection. God, it is said, inasmuch as he is a supremely perfect being, cannot be passive, but extended substance, in so far as it is divisible, is passive. It follows, therefore, that extended substance does not appertain to the essence of God. Such are the arguments I find on the subject in writers who, by them, try to prove that extended substance is unworthy of the divine nature, and cannot possibly appertain thereto. However, I think an attentive reader will see that I have already answered their propositions, for all their arguments are founded on the hypothesis that extended substance is composed of parts, and such a hypothesis I have shown, Proposition 12, and Corollary, Proposition 13, to be absurd. Moreover, anyone who reflects will see that all these absurdities, if absurdities they be, which I am not now discussing, from which it is sought to extract the conclusion that extended substance is finite, do not at all follow from the notion of an infinite quantity, but merely from the notion that an infinite quantity is measurable and composed of finite parts. Therefore, the only fair conclusion to be drawn is that infinite quantity is not measurable and cannot be composed of finite parts. This is exactly what we have already proved in Proposition 12. Wherefore, the weapon which they aimed at us has in reality recoiled upon themselves. If from this absurdity of theirs they persist in drawing the conclusion that extended substance must be finite, they will in good sooth be acting like a man who asserts that circles have the properties of squares, and finding himself thereby landed in absurdities, proceeds to deny that circles have any center from which all lines drawn to the circumference are equal. For taking extended substance, which can only be conceived as infinite, one, and indivisible, Propositions 8, 5, 12, they assert, in order to prove that it is finite, that it is composed of finite parts, and that it can be multiplied and divided. So also others, after asserting that a line is composed of points, can produce many arguments to prove that a line cannot be infinitely divided. Assuredly, it is not less absurd to assert that extended substance is made up of bodies or parts than it would be to assert that a solid is made up of surfaces, a surface of lines, and a line of points. This must be admitted by all who know clear reason to be infallible, and most of all by those who deny the possibility of a vacuum. For if extended substance could be so divided that its parts were really separate, why should not one part admit of being destroyed, the others remaining joined together as before? And why should all be so fitted into one another as to leave no vacuum? Surely, in the case of things which are really distinct one from the other, 
one can exist without the other, and can remain in its original condition. As then there does not exist a vacuum in nature of which and on, but all parts are bound to come together to prevent it. It follows from this that the parts cannot really be distinguished, and that extended substance, in so far as it is substance, cannot be divided. If any one asks me the further question, why are we naturally so prone to divide quantity? I answer that quantity is conceived by us in two ways, in the abstract and superficially as we imagine it, or as substance, as we conceive it solely by the intellect. If, then, we regard quantity as it is represented in our imagination, which we often and more easily do, we shall find that it is finite, divisible, and compounded of parts but if we regard it as it is represented in our intellect, and conceive it as substance which it is very difficult to do, we shall then, as I have sufficiently proved, find that it is infinite, one, and indivisible. This will be plain enough to all who make a distinction between the intellect and the imagination, especially if it be remembered that matter is everywhere the same, that its parts are not distinguishable except in so far as we conceive matter as diversely modified, whence its parts are distinguished not really, but modally. For instance, water, in so far as it is water, we conceive to be divided, and its parts to be separated one from the other, but not in so far as it is extended substance. From this point of view, it is neither separated nor divisible. Further, water, in so far as it is water, is produced and corrupted, but in so far as it is substance, is neither produced nor corrupted. I think I have now answered the second argument. It is, in fact, founded on the same assumption as the first, namely, that matter, in so far as it is substance, is divisible and composed of parts. Even if it were so, I do not know why it should be considered unworthy of the divine nature, inasmuch as besides God, by Proposition 14, no substance can be granted wherefrom it could receive its modifications. All things, I repeat, are in God, and all things which come to pass come to pass solely through the laws of the infinite nature of God, and follow, as I will shortly show, from the necessity of His essence. Wherefore, it can in no wise be said that God is passive in respect to anything other than himself, or that extended substance is unworthy of the divine nature, even if it be supposed divisible, so long as it is granted to be infinite and eternal. But enough of this for the present. End of Part 1 Propositions 11-15 to 15. Recording by Dr. Wu